So we're carrying on in our series of the glory of the Messiah. And although I didn't actually know it was going to happen, but this is a bit by way of a starter for 10 for John's series on, the, on Christ in the Old Testament, if, you can, uh, if you're able to get to his, his sessions. So we're looking at what Richard's termed the shadow of the cross in our themes. And if you want to turn to Luke 24, just to set a context for the sort of thing we're going to be doing here. It's a familiar story. I know it's not Easter, but we can read it today. Jesus meeting Cleopas and another disciple on the way to, on way to Emmaus. It's the day of the resurrection, but they don't know it yet. And they don't recognize Jesus. And you know how it goes. They say they thought Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet, maybe the Messiah. Then he'd been killed by the Romans, and now even the body was gone. And there was some story about maybe it was missing. And it was all over, and they were going to have to wait for another Messiah to arise. And then Jesus tells them, Luke 24, verse 5, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice in passing that Jesus doesn't tell them they were wrong to expect the Messiah to come as king, who would rule and reign, rule the whole world. And that themes for another day. But what Jesus did need to show them was that the Messiah's path to glory would be through suffering and his exaltation as king would be on a cross. And we needed to show them why a death was needed. We don't know where he started, and he probably had more time, but one possibility is the promise that was made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. God spoke to Abraham and gave him a quite outrageous, undeserved promise that all the peoples of the world was going to be blessed through him. And Paul picks that up in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 3.8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. There's a process setting going here. Paul goes on at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say to offsprings, which isn't really English anyway, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring, to Christ. And Paul's talking how the promise to Abraham echoes the promise made to the woman back in Genesis, Genesis 3.15, that her descendant would defeat the serpent. The prophecies are for the benefit of nations, but they're focused on one individual who will come in descent from Abraham. Later on, Moses reminded some of Abraham's descendants why they were chosen. This is Deuteronomy 7 and 6. You're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. What he's saying is that God's special regard for the chosen people, descendants of Abraham, is because of his choice, not because they deserved it, Though God cares for all his creation, he gives particular attention to those he's chosen. And in return, 
He's demanding particular obedience. Because Moses carries on, this is the same chapter, Deuteronomy 7, verse 11. So take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. God's love for his people isn't some sort of vague benevolence. It's a focused attention on his chosen people and he expects exclusive loyalty in return. Much, much later, Amos would say to them, you only have I chosen of all the families on earth, therefore I punish you for all your sins. God wants a people that remember they're chosen and loved and don't take his love for granted. And time and again, the prophets are going to have to remind the people of Israel that he required them to be holy. And if we turn to Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet got a lesson in holiness straight from the throne in Isaiah 6. <clears throat> Very familiar passage. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's easy to understand how Isaiah felt in the presence of God. Have you ever wondered about the seraphim? They're as pure as pure can be, awesome creatures. They live in the presence of God, and yet they use most of their wings to cover their feet and their faces in submission and respect from the Lord on his throne. So what's going on? I think the fundamental thing is they're aware they are just that, they're creatures. They know the difference between the creator and created beings. And that difference is at the heart of what we mean when we say God's holy. Which takes us perhaps inevitably to Leviticus. I'm sure John will teach on this at much greater length, but I just want to turn to Leviticus 18. It's a sort of summary of all the chapters that have gone before that, the details of the law. The Lord says to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. Don't follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And that phrase, I am the Lord, is repeated time and again to ensure we never, never, never miss the point that all these complicated, sometimes rather obscure regulations, the purpose is to go beyond the law to the Lord God himself and to his holiness. And that word, pardon my Hebrew, kadosh, thereabouts, which we translate as holy, it, it can just mean the, the, you know, the godness of a god, the divine bit. It gets used of people that have been set aside to serve gods and that sort of thing, but when it comes down to applying to Yahweh, it's the separation between the creator and the creature that the seraphim know. 
and also the moral separation between the perfect and the faulty, the pure and the sinful, that made Isaiah yell out that he was undone in the presence of God. And that gap is going to be hard to bridge. So when Leviticus 19.2, God says to his people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. He's not talking about them being like him in his uncreated nature. That's impossible, obviously. But like him in his moral nature, which seems impossible. He repeats the demand in Leviticus 20.26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the people so you can be mine. He's chosen them, set them apart so they can reflect his character. But what if they don't? What happens when God looks for purity and finds impurity? At that point we get to a deeply unfashionable term, the wrath of God. Sin's not just making poor decisions which have unpleasant consequences. That's often true. There is a law of cause and effect on sin. But the main point is that when we sin, we offend a personal God and his response is personal anger. If that's all there was to it, the relationship between man and God was going to be doomed for all time because there's nothing we could ever do to turn back God's anger. So knowing they couldn't be faithful, they wouldn't be able to stay faithful, God made a way to deal with sins in his people. Psalm 28 puts it nicely that their their hearts were not sincere toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant, yet he was compassionate. He atoned for their guilt and did not destroy them. He often turned his anger aside and didn't unleash all his wrath. So if God was going to atone for guilt, how was that going to work? In a word, sacrifice. Books of the law are full of detailed instructions on how people can be put right with God by substitutionary sacrifice. Substitution means the suffering of the innocent for the guilty. The earliest days, animal sacrifice is the way God chose to allow his anger against sin to be satisfied. So scriptures full of altars where animals that have never done anything wrong are killed on behalf of people who have. It's all very foreign to us in some ways. No songs and a lot of blood. So what's going on? So despite the lack of songs, there is worship. In a culture where wealth is measured in sheep and goats and cows... It's an act of devotion to sacrifice an animal. But worship alone isn't going to bridge the gap between man and God. A person that's broken God's laws can't approach God as if some praise and worship will make it better. The anger that God has towards sin and wrongdoing needs to be dealt with, and his chosen way is the giving up of life and shedding of blood. Back in Leviticus, just before Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Atonement is one of those very few theological words that actually comes from English, rather than Latin. But it translates kippah in Hebrew, as in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It can mean payment, mean ransom, covering, cleansing, rectifying, putting things straight. In some religions, you bring a sacrifice because your God is grumpy, capricious, and you need to bribe him or her to be nice. 
that's not the case with the God of Israel. His anger is simply because of his holy righteousness and it can't be overlooked. It needs to be satisfied. There's love behind the anger, but the sin's got to be dealt with. So God provided that a life could be given back to him on behalf of the people and satisfy his anger. Behind all the blood and the guts of sacrifice is a God that wants to be gracious to his people. So he provides a way to remove the barrier of sin and let his grace flow. It's never a way to twist his arm and make him gracious. It's a way he's made to enable himself to be gracious. And it's not just a mechanical settling of accounts. So much sin paid for by so many lambs or bulls on the altar. The debt's too much. So God says he'll accept a substitute life. Life which came from him in the first place, obviously. In order to restore the relationship, mercy comes as a price. And the price is a life given up. But they soon found out the sacrificial system needed a seemingly endless cycle of new offerings. It wasn't that the Levitical code didn't work. Within its own parameters it works. It was that the law alone couldn't bring righteousness into the hearts of people. Now, though most of the law and the teachers of the law were clear that it all depended on God's grace, there were many that came to believe that they could earn righteousness by an application of rules rather than dependency on the mercy of God. And while this is going on, the whole nation keeps a, a, a cycle we've talked about before of sin and idolatry, then calling back to God, then for, failing again. So the prophets start to call for something more. Hosea says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and walk humbly before your God. And the Psalms cry out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit. To change hearts especially change Gentile hearts who haven't even got the law in the first place, is going to take something new. In Jeremiah 31.31, which is also quoted in the letter to the Hebrews, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, even though as their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall each teach his neighbour and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. But how is it going to do that? How are we going to reconcile a perfect God with imperfect men and women? In Isaiah, familiar, again familiar scriptures, we saw far into the future. 
To an individual, he simply calls the servant. Some verses from Isaiah 42. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's too long for this morning. Here is my servant whom I hold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him. He'll bring justice to the nations. In faithfulness, he'll bring forth justice. He'll not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. This is what the Lord, God the Lord says. I'll keep you and I'll make you to be a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And a few chapters further on, Isaiah 53, very well known. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom the people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. Let's pause and think there. This is Isaiah 6, six and a half centuries before Christ comes. He could have been there describing it. We're all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The strange thing is, for all this familiarity of this great prophecy, there's actually very few mentions of it in the New Testament. And some people have pointed out that might be because it's a guide to the New Testament as a whole. Perhaps Jesus used it when he was as an outline for what he said to Cleopas and the others. Jesus had come in the power of the Spirit. He preached, declared justice, opened blind eyes, freed people from prisons of sickness and oppression, then being rejected, despised, treated with contempt by his own people and by the Gentiles, put to death on false charges and crushed by sins he hadn't committed. In fact, he'd fulfilled what we've read of the prophecy. And it all being according to his own plan. Verse 10 it says, It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He makes himself an offering for sin. A lot of this is explained and commented on in, in the letter to the Hebrews. Let's read one, one small part of it from Hebrews 9.11. It's too long to, to go through in detail. <clears throat> Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood and bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean, if that sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of transgressions under the first covenant. Those who are called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. And as you know, the writer of Hebrews explains that Jesus, the Messiah, went like a high priest into the presence of God, taking his own blood as the permanent offering for sin. Doing that, he superseded the repeated animal sacrifices under the law, so that, down at verse, um, verse 28 of chapter 9 there, the author can say Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, once only death for a perfect atonement. so much here but we need to <clears throat> to wrap up today the, the, the cross wasn't a surprise to Jesus it was a surprise to his disciples a disaster to them but it wasn't a surprise to him and it didn't make him any less the Messiah and King that they were expecting he knew it must happen the plan of God had been built up over centuries patiently revealed in the history of Israel and now and then Paul can write to the Galatians, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And he did that through fulfilling everything that had been said of him in the Old Testament, in a willing sacrifice on the cross. It was his plan, he fulfilled it, and now he comes to explain it to his disciples. I think next week we'll begin to talk more about what actually happened at, at the cross. But this brings us <clears throat> to that point of where the cross is going to be revealed. And we'll talk next week about some more of what has been said and done through the cross. But for now, can we remember that he came as planned. He came as God had always intended. Didn't, it didn't catch him by surprise. He gave himself willingly for us and poured himself out for us. Can we worship him then?